Chapter 7 Although the second image could not have been a memory, it felt like one. Again, it was of Otto. He wasn't with Marie anymore. He was hiding behind a boulder high in the mountains. He was able to recall how very cold his right hand was. Nestled into his shoulder was the stock of a heavy musket. The sight was aimed at a protrusion in the rock face across the canyon within shouting distance of his position. He had a commanding view of the cave. Once both images were fixed, Otto began to toggle between them, trying to make one more captivating than the other. The way to improve an image was to make it as rich in detail as possible. Gradually, both images began to fill the twilight he'd allowed himself to be subsumed by. He didn't know, yet, which one would win his game of Black Sea. As he didn't have a wristwatch where he was in the wilderness, he glanced at his wristwatch in the image with Marie. It was one minute after two. Just then, he was holding her arm with a severity he could feel in the clench of his jaw. The corresponding force of his grip was making her tug away from him. He wanted to tell her what was wrong, but he couldn't think how to. She was asking him what the matter was. Otto had to laugh at that. The question itself was a slap in the face. The other image had fewer details so far, but it was just as compelling. Long bands of sunlight had begun to sidewind across the canyon. A front was drifting in. It would bring with it strong winds. His right hand felt heavy. He was having trouble holding the musket still. As he waited to be liberated in that forgotten place, he remembered that when Marie had asked him what the matter was, he'd told her it was nothing and that he was happy. He recalled having seen the raven then and heard the ravens now. If only he'd been able to say something truthful. Yet Otto had been as honest as he dared. Regardless of the distortions of knowing his future, he hadn't told his wife a lie. For a moment, there in the Austrian Alps, his happiness had been so complete that things could only get worse. His recollection of what had happened in 1999 was resolute. It was the most essential moment of his life. It hardly seemed fair to compare it with an impression of crouching behind a boulder waiting to fire a musket in anger. The slender shape of Marie's nose, her green eyes, her mischievous smile, her ready intelligence dominated what Otto saw in the game. But the recollection that he'd suddenly and irrevocably known how their relationship would end tainted the moment. This single instance of clairvoyance Otto had experienced in 1999 would displace him mentally for as long as his fortune could be written. Closing in was a much angrier Otto. This was an Otto who couldn't accept his fate. It was an Otto who existed as tangibly as he did. Knotted around his head was a brown bare hide, the back of which hung over his shoulders. The rest of his attire proved to be a loose arrangement of soft tan leathers and thick white furs. He wore long black riding boots. His right hand was curved around the checkered forend of the musket's walnut stock. 
He'd been waiting for so long that his palm had become frozen to the metal inlays. The only part of his hand he could still feel was his forefinger, ready to pull the trigger. As he squinted down the barrel, the chill air ran to his nose and spread round his eyes. The ravens became louder in fresh pulses of wind. Their cawing was exactly the crescendo Otto had been waiting for. It was the inflamed finale he'd been priming himself for. When he saw his quarry trot onto the ridge to top off his rage, all he had to do was sing my favorite things ironically. The angry singing warmed his innards, training his weapon on that distant rider who represented nothing but a blight on his existence. Otto howled his song like an opera singer and got himself ready to blast away. It was a fury creeping towards its own extremes. It would never have occurred to Otto that singing a song that hadn't been written yet was improbable. He was in a place where there was no difficulty in randomly inventing a song so that it might be thought of again by chance sometime in the future. His desire to be liberated outweighed every implausibility associated with the execution of the horseman across the canyon. Otto's whole being lived only for the moment when he would see his victim squirming in the gravel, mortally wounded and unable to go on. Nor, as a former solicitor and a person who had previously enjoyed a fairly robust moral perspective, did it trouble him that he may have been about to commit a serious offense. A voice in his head helped narrate this conclusion. It was the arch voice of a lawyer. It wouldn't necessarily be an offense, the voice explained, in that definitive style which paves the way for every possibility. What is done can only be criminalized where the criminality of it is properly defined, the voice said. Look around you, the voice urged. The fact of the matter was, the modern law of murder was unlikely to be recognized, not with any judicial rigor, not in the Caucasus in 1882, Furthermore, the voice calculated, this ambush Otto was so determined to carry out had taken place too long ago to be remembered for the purposes of modern justice. His face was plumed in smoke. Only then did his musket explode. It went off like the slow roar of a lion. It shot ricocheted around the walls of the canyon, singing out as it went. The smoke stabbed his eyes. For a moment he couldn't tell what he'd done. When he rubbed his eyes, it became apparent that the rider had jumped to the ground and was crouching behind his horse. Now it was apparent that the horse and the rider were beginning to edge towards the cave entrance. The top of the man's papaka was visible over his empty saddle. Otto reached for his ammunition pouch. If he was quick about it, he might be able to finish the job off. He pulled out another lead ball. Singing his caustic song, he packed plenty of powder into the barrel with a ramrod, aimed true, and let off a second round. There was a small blaze in the firing mechanism. More acrid smoke poured into the air. The musket exploded uproariously. <coughs> and the next shot went hurtling towards its mark. 
When the smoke cleared, to Otto's dismay, the rider was still on his feet. The second blast had been enough to stir the white mare to her senses, though. She'd reared onto her hind legs so high and hard her reins could no longer be secured. She bolted then. She galloped up the ridge, away from the cave, and back down the trail she'd come from. Otto chose to reveal his position. He climbed onto a rock and stood with his musket by his side. In order to communicate his feelings, he clenched his right fist and shook it in the air. Since the beginning of the age of the clever ape, this gesture has only ever conveyed one meaning. Had the ape been able to shout, it would have shouted, We're not done yet. He was about to reload his musket and fire off another round, but it seemed that the rider had his own ideas. The fool was making a dash for the cave. He no longer had the physique for speed and could only trundle along quickly, but there wasn't much ground to cover, and he might just make it. Disgusted, Otto tossed his musket into the canyon. Not for the first time, he regretted having thought of using an oily antique to assassinate the rider with. From a sheath beneath his furs, he slipped out a double-bladed kina. It had a black ebony handle inlaid with pearl. The blade had been sharpened at both ends for a more flexible kill. With a force he couldn't resist, Otto had determined that unless he wanted to be lassoed to a madman's imaginings forevermore, he had to prevent the rider from entering the cave. He opened his wings and leapt into the air. From higher up, a couple of ravens swooped down. Faster than arrows can fly, the wind flung Otto across the canyon. He knew he was being chased by rival ravens, but he didn't care. It added to the thrill of the kill. As he bore down on the ridge, the rider turned and looked up. Otto thrust out his kina. He stretched every tendon so he could cut off the rider's head before it was too late. Just as he was about to plunge the blade into the man's neck, he was distracted by some writing in the sky. It said, with time, anything is possible. There was more, but there was no time to read it. As unused to being an eagle in flight as he was to wielding a creaky old musket, and thoroughly confused by the saying the ravens had made, Otto couldn't stop himself careering straight over the rider's head. His flight ended with an undignified lunge into the mouth of the cave. His kina fell to the ground. Once he was inside, there was nowhere obvious to land and ruffle his feathers. He pitched his body upwards to perform a few desperate backward flaps. There was nothing. It wasn't that Otto had forgotten about Marie, not in the slightest. But now that the ambush had failed so miserably, both scenes in his Black Sea were sinking fast. Nor could he make them come back as anything greater than recollections. He thought he must still be in the cave, yet his body had no fixed position. He wasn't standing. He wasn't sitting. 
He wasn't floating. There was nothing for him to feel. He couldn't even feel himself. There was no head to scratch. What was in his head seemed present enough, but it had no context, which is to say it had no body. Apart from the seething and highly entwined set of memories once known as Otto Loser, there really was nothing of any substance left. A match flared in the dark. Its flame tore at the air. Burdened by the weight of a substantial ring, the hand that held it was slightly flopped over. All of the light was reflected over the surfaces of the ring. Vinctus Promentano was still sitting at his table. It was as if he and Otto hadn't finished their coffee yet. Although Otto was unlocated, he found his memories being drawn towards the table. A soft golden light now rippled along the cave walls as Promentano touched his match to half a dozen candles in a silver candelabra. If the Spitzenhof had been the setting for an opera, performed in a massive cave, it would have looked like this. The depiction of the café was highlighted by the images of a single waiter weaving like a spectre in and out of tables positioned artistically around the darkened stage. Near Promontano's own table there was a stand, but without any hats or coats. The priest sat alone. There was no crockery or cutlery. There was only the elegant candelabra the book he'd been reading, and a bulky manila envelope. Otto felt more like himself again. He was still something amorphous, a reminiscence, but he seemed more anchored, as if he might be able to sit in a chair. He even thought he could still taste the nutty torte he'd been eating. He could clearly see the cover of the book with its image of a Cossack on a horse in the mountains. The writer was someone called Anton Matins. Without knowing technically how this was done, Otto would commit that name to memory. He would remember it for the rest of his life. Although he could see the bulky envelope clearly enough, he couldn't see any part of himself yet. Not his hands, not his legs. There was nothing. If he was feeling at all anxious, he felt he was doing an excellent job of not letting it show, even though there was nothing to show yet. I might have known. He quipped. The priest blew his match out. For a while, he studied the trail of smoke dispersing and mixing with far more smoke in the air than there should have been. Otto coughed as if he was real. When Promontano looked in Otto's direction, he spoke as if he knew exactly who Otto was. It really has been most entertaining, Monsieur Rubo. Otto noticed that the priest's cassock was torn. There was fresh blood on the cassock, which seemed to be smoldering. It occurred to him that the priest didn't look well. You're bleeding, he said. Promontano glanced down and made a waving gesture. He said it was an old injury. It doesn't look good, Otto said. Yeah, he comes and goes, Promontano replied. This is when Otto realized that they weren't talking. They were singing. The difference was elusive, but unmistakably tuneful. The music was orchestrated cunningly after the style of an 18th century opera. The cellos played Promontano's smoking cassock. 
The violins played the anachronistic feeling Otto had of being a memory of himself. The wind section was playing a melody to do with his desire to leave the cave, and a single golden flute played the bulky manila envelope. Promontano pushed the envelope across the table until it was under Otto's nose. With his other hand, he pushed the book called Otto in Flames forwards until it was alongside the envelope. The song he sang was delivered in low notes. The money is yours, but you should have the book as well. Otto's response was defiant. Why would I want either? Think of it as a reward, Promontano said, for everything you have done. To which Otto had a retort of his own. But I've done nothing, because there is no me. The wind instruments were making him angry. Had there been anywhere to go, had he felt any less like being in an opera, he might have grabbed the money and taken a taxi back to his hotel. Although he could have done with the money, Otto certainly didn't want anything to do with the book. With the roll of the timpani, the music stopped. You should think of what is happening, Promontano said, as happening in your imagination. To anyone in the audience, this would have been obvious. But the concept was too difficult for Otto to engage with, especially as it was being explained to him in a very real setting which he was supposed to be imagining. The opera recommenced with a squiggle of squeaky notes played on the violins. Reflecting the circularity of Otto's dilemma, the music was locked into a refrain that felt as if it could never be escaped from. There was a sequence of menacing chords to accompany Promontano's melodic incursions. The chords were repeated over and over as he sang. Take the money. You'll have everything you want. Take the book and you'll actually know what you want. I'm not playing this. Otto kept spluttering. All you have to do is tell me where to find you, Rania, the priest said, and the book will be yours to read forever. Otto had no idea what the priest was talking about, but his answer was definitive. I don't want your money, he said, and I don't want your book either. You are most enthusiastic in your opposition, Promontano replied. He demonstrated his dissatisfaction in the usual way, by shaking his head with the faintest twist of a smile. I'm not playing this. The music fluttered back into position. As the priest drew the strands of their duet to a close, Otto kept shaking his head. Even when the performance is done, and your public has gone, you remain in character. Despite knowing you must lose, Monsieur Rubo, you battle on. As a performer in the English courts, Otto had been able to arrange himself in such ways as to appear not a little urbane and all-knowing himself. But he was tiring of the omnipotent gloss Promontano kept coating their conversations with. He wanted to end this charade and not have to listen to another word about his fate. 
Seeing as I'm supposed to be imagining you, he said in an ordinary belligerent voice, why can't I imagine you as a character in that book you're reading? The priest's smile faded. His expression conveyed pity this time, rather than condescension. The music softened too, giving them both room to speak their final words. Whatever else you may believe, Promontano said, you may rest assured that I am not what you imagine me to be. What are you then? Nothing you could conceive of, Monsieur Roubault. My name isn't Roubault. I made that up. Yes, I know. I'm an automaton. So you say. As they parried in this way, bubbles of blood coalesced around the tear in Promontano's cassock. Another ripple of flames ignited from within the wound. It was smothered by more oozing. The smoke swirled around them. Otto pointed to the spot where blood was coming out. As off-handedly as he could, he said, You really ought to get that scene to. Promontano didn't look down. He placed his left hand on Otto in flames and his right hand on the envelope. The oversized ring was glowing. What is written in his book is that you take the money, he said. It's not as if you have a choice. <laughs> Otto laughed in his face. And does the book say I tell you where to find this person you called Urania? As he asked this, the flame around Promontano's belly reignited, and so did the music. Where I come from, the priest sang, disrespect is dealt with harshly. And where do you come from, Otto said. There are no words for where I come from. In that case, Otto said, you ought to be easy enough to forget. Promontano's smile waned with his song. <sighs> you are so much more interesting in person, Monsieur Rubo, he said. The candles were extinguished by the gust of his words. He'd smiled for the very last time. As the stage went black, the music concluded with a clash of dissonant chords played like the fearsome barks of a dog. Imagine danger. Some people prefer to say yes. I'm uneasy with acquiescence. It's not that I'm never inclined to agree, but Promontano was onto something when he observed how enthusiastic I can be in my opposition. While others measure their success in their affirmations, my default is to locate negations. I tend to negate in a variety of ways. This includes prevarication, saying yes but, or possibly, or we'll see. From a distance my attitude might be regarded as an automated and self-regulating trope. For better or worse, I can only concede that saying no has become integral to my nature. I noticed it for the first time after I came out of my coma. 
I began to observe how my nature is expressed repetitively without any input from the me being expressed. The repetition is what I think gives the illusion of stability. The way I perceived things at any one time, the way I spoke, my likes and dislikes, my reactions to situations, the way I looked and dressed was a physical conglomerate of every kind of persistent memory I was likely to have. Yet the mutations took place under my nose. From one decade to the next, all of it would evolve so completely as to make me barely recognizable, even to myself. And yet, in my younger days, I would have preferred to say yes. Nothing was denied, which suggests that whatever I am is always passing through me. It's a restructuring with nothing more constant than the changes that happen. As well as conceding that a tendency to say no has become integral to the way I am now, I must also accept that the ideas which have dominated my thoughts since coming out of a coma often challenge conventions to do with having a self. But as I told Promentano, I'm not doing anything. All I have is a semblance of a self, constructed from any number of ideas grouping through me, none of which are mine. They are my memories of how to remember. There is no definite me in the equation that produces me. If anything gets done in my name, it gets done as a consequence of everything else that happens. As the universe grinds itself out in me, all that remains of the being I am is an awareness of the complexities of play. Anton liked to portray my ideas discreetly. He was aware of them, but the impression he liked to give his readers was that after being struck over the head with a metal pole, my personality was temporarily out of order. He tiptoed around my assertions. By writing about being an automaton, he suggested that I'd gone overboard. I'd revealed something about myself which should have been left alone. The story he told was that writing life in spot water is what had planted the notion of an automaton in my poor damaged brain. This thing I had created was meant to have a separate character. In moments of distress it would leap out of my thoughts to rescue me from myself. Anton knew very well this wasn't the case. To his credit, he was honest enough to include one short paragraph in Otto and Flames, which wasn't entirely fictional. Even if Otto wasn't always aware of it, the function of the automaton was permanent. Every perception he had, every action he undertook, to the last bat of an eye, operated out of the universal exposition of everything which had, at its core, a void of unknowing. Of all Anton's attempts to describe what I am, this short paragraph is the most accurate because it has an eye on the mystery of things. The problem confounding me has always been this. Even though life's trajectory appears inexorable, its origins are so impenetrable that they can't be imagined leaving nothing to think of but a void. While I was writing my monograph, I was still a lawyer. The narrow premise of the law is that a person is either guilty or not guilty. But I was seeing daily how in real life 
there was no alternative to what happens to a person. Despite the countless number of factors that make an event what it seems, once it's happened, it's happened. It's irrevocable. The alternative didn't happen. Alternatives never happen. They can only be imagined. Yet the notion that a person has alternatives at any given moment is the fiction we are all prepared to countenance. That's not how it was in the unseen. In the unseen, all the alternatives thrived. They only had to be thought of. What I witnessed there was as fragmented as my thoughts are and evolved just as rapidly. Rather than the temporal existence I thought I had, I found myself in a highly convoluted state where anything was possible. To be precise, it was a state in which anything conceivable had already happened. The experience was deeply disturbing, and often incredibly shallow. Because of the crowding of trillions of possibilities, no single one could be sustained without being interfered with or overtaken by a competitor. To have known that the unseen was unstable in the same way that I am was horrific. When Anton was drawn into this vortex, his preoccupations took him to the threshold of a cave. We might say the cave was his invention. Although clearly he didn't invent the idea of caves, this one became his preternatural home at the heart of the unseen. As I suspected, going inside turned out to be an intensification of the phenomenon of all possibilities, and was far more persuasive than any of the oddities he'd come across before he suffered a stroke and died. What the next stage of his unraveling offered us both was an endless and perfectly realized entombment. In the depths of Anton's wanderings, as long as it could be imagined, he would be able to materialize his thoughts so that they became more permanently real. The only thing Anton couldn't imagine in the midst of it all was escaping from wherever he was. Once you're in a condition where anything imaginable is possible, what is there to escape from? What he believed in that condition was that his inspirations were being delivered to him by a Greek goddess. This was achievable. At the moment of his death, he imagined still being able to imagine. Even that was doable. Once inside the cave, there would be so much mightiness awaiting him that Anton might have imagined ordering the world so that it became a sustainable and pleasant place to live in, or he could just as easily have vaporized it and started over again. No matter what he did or imagined doing, as long as he was able to dream it up, each of his desires would be instantly met, so that from eon to eon he would never feel the need of anything or anyone again. So it was that to be in the unseen was to exist in the void of having everything imaginable. And it was in that void that Anton made me come to life. Nothing could have been easier, but the moment it happened, I was no longer simply a character for him to mull over. I was a real person too. Because I am naturally reticent, it was obvious from the start that I was not cut out for the role Anton had in mind for me, which is no doubt precisely the role he had in mind for me. 
I have never wanted to know what happens in the future. My method has been to tackle problems as they come in a rational manner. My encounters with Promontano were enough to put any sane person off. How could a writer have come up with such nonsense? Once I understood the bizarre nature of the predicament Anton had landed me in, my opposition to the situations he tried to construct around my life became absolute. Nor did I have any desire to utilize the unseen, even if it meant rejecting a sizable bribe from the exotic priest, even if it meant not knowing how Anton's book about me ended. My plight as the man who knew too much had already been an unmitigated disaster. The only thing that saved me was my contrarian disposition. I would have preferred any time-limited fate rather than say yes to being immortal in the unseen with Anton. What I wanted was to be in a place where random events occurred in a comfortably ordered sequence which came to their own understandable conclusions. Somewhere like Vienna, for example, at around midnight, on Wednesday the 18th of February, 2019. That was good enough for me and it was perfectly realizable. You may say that Anton was manipulating me, or even using me. You may even think he was abusing the power he had over me. But this begs the old question of whether Anton was the originator of his own thoughts. I will tell you again that he wasn't. He may have felt guilty. I would hope so, after what he put me through but I can only argue that he couldn't possibly have prevented the thoughts he had from occurring, because like me, there was no him. There were only the thoughts themselves passing through his body. Forgive me if I overstate this, but I was born in a void of unknowing, so I ought to know. Anton was the one who had to travel there on a horse. He could write his book in a carefree spirit, because he loved his life the way a child loves a roller coaster ride. He was terrified of his thoughts just as much as he was thrilled by them. Whether or not the danger was real, Anton was the sort of person who couldn't say no. That's why he created me, why he made me up in the first place, why I exist. Because what a person who can't say no needs is a person who can't say yes. Then he died and everything changed in the expansion of a second. It was a second hidden in the beautifully lustrous golden case of a pocket watch owned at one time by the Reverend Dr. Henry Lansdell. More specifically, the expansion happened at one minute and 12 seconds past two o'clock on the afternoon of the 18th of February, 2019, when Anton's body stopped functioning and his imagination flared up. When he realized what had really happened, it was the middle of the night. It was no longer raining. His eyes were closed. His horse had bolted. The danger had passed. But his worry for Oksana still prevented him from mustering the courage to go into the cave. The sky was crowded with stars. Had he opened his eyes, he would have seen the raven's words etched in the starlight. The words made the only true sounds in that frosted over dark. With time, 
anything is possible. I could add that without time everything is, but Anton didn't look and he didn't listen. As long as he kept his eyes closed, all he could distinguish from everything else in existence was the scratch of an oily brush against canvas. Even though Oksana was the one who had run away, Anton had promised her he would be back. It was bitterly cold, and the birds were in the far-off night, but he made sure he kept his eyes closed in case he ever saw her again. He was ready to go into the cave. He'd only completed seven chapters of Otto in Flames. There was no way of finding out how the rest of the book went. But he was thinking with his fear. Because it was dark, Anton imagined the danger must be greater. It wasn't, but the prospect of danger was something his memories didn't cope well with. Even if the danger was only imagined, his memories panicked so that the fears produced by the imagined danger were no different from the real thing. If anything, it was his desire to be with Oksana forever that made it possible for him to overcome his death. Creeping into that cavernous space was like the shuffling sound of hundreds of people in a cathedral, all of them standing at once, all holding their breath. As he groped his way along a rocky passage, he became cognizant of a new grouping of words that might become part of chapter 8. The first word was declaration. Declaration was followed by dog. Then he remembered the word echo. Eventually these words formed a sentence. Each declaration the dog made had a curious echo. As with all writers, the operative words that stimulated Anton were inflected by the dynamics of his memories. He didn't know why he was remembering those words in that order. Memories can be troublesome, too profuse and subject to the vagaries of time. It may be that the ways in which they occur can never be adequately understood. Dog, curious, echo. His previously sporadic consideration of these words over his foreshortened life, whether lying awake in bed, in conversation, or just moving from place to place, had led to a comprehension of their possibilities. Because they'd occurred to him in the cave, Anton was faced with the prospect of having to incorporate them through the process of articulation he would continue to think of as reporting on the unseen. Step by step, he made his way deeper into the passages until he was utterly lost. The recollections that came to him would turn into the continuation of Otto in Flames and would only make sense far into the future. 